0: Brett McKay here and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. There are thousands of books, podcasts, and social media posts about how to be more productive, strengthen your relationships, find your purpose, and be your all-around best self. And there are legions of programs and seminars out there designed to help improve your life. Altogether, self-help represents a multi-billion dollar industry. But despite its ubiquity and cultural influence, you may have never thought about the deeper underpinnings of self-improvement. My guest has. In fact, Her research led her to add being a life coach to her academic work as a professor of cultural history, surely creating one of the most unique career combinations. Her name is Anna Schaffner, and she's the author of The Art of Self-Improvement, 10 Timeless Truths. Anna and I begin our conversation with how the idea of self-improvement, far from being a recent Western phenomenon, traces back to antiquity and can be found across cultures. We discuss how self-help reflects what a culture values and changes based on a culture's conception of selfhood agency and the relationship between the individual and society from there we turn to a few of the timeless principles of self-improvement self-control being virtuous and building positive relationships looking both at how they were tackled anciently as well as more modern angles that could be helpful we discussed the downside of taking a strictly stoic approach to life the idea of making virtue a habit and how Dell carnegie can be seen as a modern machiavelli in a good way we our conversation with anna's four favorite self-improvement books after the show's over check out our show notes at awim.is self-improvement All right, Anna Schaffner, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure.
0: So we had you on a few years ago to discuss your book on the cultural history of exhaustion. You got another book of cultural history out, and this time it's about self-improvement. What led you to take a deep dive into the cultural history of self-improvement?
1: yeah, um in lots of ways, it seemed a very natural follow on from my previous book, Exhaustion and History. So I think that I think of this book as the positive counterpart to it. It's very much about how we can manage to care for and project our energy outwards. And I've always been really interested in psychology and personal development. And I have also read my fair share of self-help over the years. Um, you know, I'm an extreme introvert, and I often feel socially quite awkward. I have a lot of inner noise going on, you know, a very harsh, unkind super ego. And I've somehow always been looking for cures for these conditions. And I also grew up with a really strong internalized belief that we can and always must improve ourselves. So, you know, I've internalized this fairly Protestant work ethic extended to the self. And so I read a lot of self help but because I'm a cultural historian and a literature scholar by training, I, you know, at some point read these texts much more critically. And I realized that most of our self-help is really very ideological in spirit. It's not just harmless advice literature, you know, and it's also a hugely influential genre if we think about it. It very powerfully and directly seeks to shape our aspirations and our values and behaviors. And it really does so at scale. So self-help is a massive industry, you know, worth almost $40 billion worldwide. And I think at the same time, this imperative that we constantly have to improve ourselves, that we have to work on ourselves, is a really, really strong cultural expectation in our times. And many of us have have internalized it quite unquestioningly, and, and including myself. And at some point, I wondered, where did it come from? You know, and has it always been like this? And if we drill down deeper, what does self-improvement actually mean? So what is our current understanding of the self, you know, what counts as improvement and what, why so for example why should it be considered an improvement to become more extroverted you know when we might be naturally quite introverted and these were the kinds of questions that motivated me to write my book and of course as a cultural historian i'm also really interested in what changes and what remains the same and especially when it comes to self-improvement advice and i discovered that self-improvement has a hugely long history and that there's really a lot that we can learn from our ancestors and from other
0: cultures so, when you started researching, going back in the history of self-improvement, like, how far does it this idea of self-improvement go? And, and do we see it across cultures?
1: Yeah, I mean, that's the fascinating thing, Brett. It's really, it goes back all the way to ancient China, you know, to the earliest recorded texts that people have written. And I do think that self-improvement really is a ubiquitous and timeless desire, and that it is it can be traced all the way back to to the ancient civilizations. And really, it is for millennia that philosophers, sages, and theologians have reflected on the good life and devised strategies on how to achieve it. So, I really do see self-improvement as a timeless human desire. And I see it very intricately related to learning and to self-knowledge and to growth. And of course, there are you know, quite a lot of academics who who critique self-help and they see, you know, this constant imperative to self-optimize as a, you know, perfidious neoliberal creature which is designed to put all responsibility for our well-being on our own shoulders. And, you know, they argue that self-help distracts us from the structural forces that may be making us ill. Um, but I really do think that Whilst there is self help of that kind out there, the imperative and the desire to self improve is, is really a huge part of what makes us human. And it has been, has been a feature of of human experience from the very start. And I do think that. Self-help is actually a specific genre that emerged in the 19th century, when the first self-help text as we know it, you know, designed written for autodidacts who want to improve themselves without the help of others, you know, who want a kind of how-to manual, and that doesn't require the involvement of any other third parties. So that that's a fairly new genre. But ancient advice literature that is aimed at helping us to improve, to grow, to learn, to sharpen our self-understanding and self-knowledge really can be found in, in ancient China, in ancient Greece, and it has a really long tradition. And I think that tradition is, is usually interesting to explore because many of the modern self-help texts actually hark back into, into these ancient practices and they repackage, rebrand, relabel older ideas. And it's really interesting to trace these back to their original sources.
0: Yeah, that's an interesting point you make in the book is that today self-help or self-improvement literature is written by self-help authors. And these people are typically maybe sometimes psychologists, other times they're just people who decide you know i was successful here's what worked for me but if you go back anciently self improvement literature were it was a completely different group of people it was theologians it was religious sages or it was philosophers who were writing self improvement literature
1: yeah that's definitely true i think um you know the purpose and mission of philosophy has changed very dramatically and i think in the past it was quite accepted that philosophy should give counsel should give practical advice, and should really help people define their values, their goals, and basically guide them. There's a beautiful quotation by Seneca who defines the purpose of philosophy as basically giving that kind of advice. he He writes something about the task of philosophy really being to shape our personality, to provide structure and moral guidelines for our behavior, and generally to sit at the helm and keep us on the correct course as we are tossed about in perilous seas. And modern philosophers have, to a large extent, abandoned that project, which is a great shame. And I think analytical philosophy you know, has done huge damage with its uh, focus on on logic and propositions, very dry, very sterile, very abstract. Um, but, but I do think some practical philosophers are making a com- comeback and there's clearly a, a hunger and a desire out there for, you know, intelligent, deep self-help that is also, you know, reflecting on the bigger question, reflecting on the social, reflecting on, you know, broader philosophical debate.
0: So you mentioned earlier that something about self-improvement literature that we often overlook is that it it can tell us something about a culture in a particular historical moment. And I hope as we discuss some of these self-improvement concepts you found across cultures, we can talk about how it's changed based on history. But big picture, like, I mean, what can self-improvement literature teach us about a, a particular culture in a particular moment in history?
1: Yeah, I think that's a really interesting question. I think self-help is, you know... I mean, we have to, if we look at it philosophically, we need to, first of all, uh, ask what is the self, what conceptions of selfhood are at play here, what counts as help and what form can that kind of help take. Um, But I would say that self-help literature in general is always based on very specific conceptions of selfhood. And it also entails conceptions of purpose, agency, responsibility, and about the relationship between the individual and society and You know, mind, body, and the social. So if you take Jordan Peterson's 12 Rules for Life, an antidote to chaos, for example, that's a text that. That isn't just a self-help text, you know. This is very, very much a culture war text. I mean, it's much more about philosophical and political assumptions about human nature than it is about imparting, you know, practical self-improvement advice. And and Peterson is very, very explicit about that. But I do think this is true for most self-help texts. You know, they they just do it under the surface, and I think he he states his assumptions very clearly and explicitly and provocatively, but in a lot of other self-help texts, they are less explicitly stated. They're just kind of taken for granted. But I think self-help always tells us a lot about a particular culture's values, about our aspirations, also about our fears and anxieties. So I really see self-help as a barometer for all sorts of deeper questions and it really can tell us very precious insights about a culture's conceptions of the self and the connections between the mind the body and the social
0: yeah with self-help there are these timeless principles that you see pop up in every age but how they're framed or you know what principles get emphasized and you know which ones get downplayed it really depends on the particular time and culture So like in ancient Greece, you know, the values they emphasized. I mean, I think you can make the case that, you know, Aristotle's Nicomachean ethics could be described as a self-help text. And, you know, the values that he emphasized are those he saw that he thought were important in being a citizen in a city-state in ancient Greece. And so self-help anciently was really for a, a certain class. You fast forward to today and, you know, the self-help literature is geared towards the average person, you know, and and everyone in our modern era has this expectation that they can rise in the world. So it's geared towards, you know, making money, you know, improving your career, being more productive, being liked, because that's what's most important to people these days. So the themes of self-help change according to what's important to a particular culture. And it tells us what's important to that culture.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So you, you have you know values at, at stake there. And I, I think what we can see is a shift, you know, from kind of character values, virtues, and virtue ethics towards a kind of personality cult. So a lot of 20th and 20 even early 21st century self-help is, is very much about skills, you know, how to become more extroverted, how to come how to become better communicators, better salespeople, how to become more effective and efficient and productive. Um, whereas in the ancient texts, you have a huge emphasis on the virtues and on you know sustainable character work on virtues that have fallen from grace, such as temperance, humility, altruism, and so on, um, in a sense that reflects where we're at, culturally speaking, more generally. You know, we've, we've moved very much from a relational culture in which the social and communities and and structures had an enormously important place and and were very much part of the mind metaphors that people were using. They were integrated into that. And we've moved from that to a kind of atomistic and very isolated individualist society in which completely different values are of importance right now.
0: So as you explored self-improvement throughout time and throughout across cultures you came across i mean there are noble and good ways to do self-improvement or an approach to it and you you think it's captured by this german word which i really like it's bildung is that my pronunciation is bildung
1: yeah bildung super excellent yeah uh, so
0: what does that word mean and why do you think that's a good way to describe a uh, noble and enriching self-improvement
1: yeah because i think bildung is really a really a really important core concept for me. Um, bildung r- refers to a form of holistic education, and one that you know very crucially encompasses our inner lives and aesthetic sense, our moral sensibilities, and also social learning. So, bildung is not just about you know acquiring knowledge and information, but it's really also about an education of our emotions, sensitivities, and it's about finding a place in societies and you know ways in which we can contribute to our communities and bildung was first theorized by the german philosopher wilhelm von humboldt in the 19th century and for me it encapsulates the the essence and the purpose of self improvement because i do see self improvement as a form of learning. I see it as a process of learning about our inner lives, our patterns, preferences, strengths and weaknesses, but also very crucially about how we can direct our energies outwards. So um, I think positive self-improvement is visible in us being able to give to other people and to projects we care about. So it's really not just about you know, enhancing ourselves so that we can be more effective and efficient and productive. I think it's so that we can also find our our place in in, in the social fabric. And self-improvement for me is very much about not being a slave to our shadows. It's very much about pulling as much as we can into the realm of consciousness. And by that, to avoid wasting our energies in endless inner psychological battles so I think ultimately the sign of positive self improvement is that we can give and engage better, that we can focus our attention outwards, and so I therefore really disagree with you know lots of academic critiques of self help and self improvement as the selfish and narcissistic, you know, a kind of neoliberal project, because finding our own unique ways of being relational and social, I think, is for me the ultimate sign of positive self improvement.
0: The way I grabbed, you know, understood that is build dung. It, it seemed it was a good way, an, a good analogy or metaphor. And this is, you, you talk about metaphors a lot with your work and how they can shape the way we think about ideas. Build for me is, is about, it's almost like a, a farming or a garden metaphor. It's like you're trying to mm-hmm. use the environment you're in, grow it slowly, nurture the world around you while you're nurturing yourself. So it's sort of interconnected. I think a lot of modern self-help, the metaphor is like you're building a skyscraper and you can just bulldoze through and you just put up whatever you want. You can restructure yourself however you want. I think that's the modern idea of it, at least. I think buildung captures more of a, it reminds me of like you're on a, a organic farm and you're trying to just <laughs> grow the best self possible.
1: Yeah, that's, that's beautiful, Brad. I fully agree. I think you know the ancient models and metaphors are really about cultivating, you know, cultivating the self. And cultivation is a kind of biological, agrarian metaphor, as you say. And um, and I think nowadays there are quite a lot of harmful and very problematic metaphors around. So you mentioned some, but there's also the kind of brain as computer metaphor, which is really ubiquitous. And um, so a lot of self-help texts talk about reprogramming ourselves, you know, upgrading, fine-tuning, rewiring, cognitive overload, switching off, you know, getting rid of psychological malware and eliminating behavioral glitches and so on. And I do think these are really damaging metaphors because metaphors matter. Metaphors are really important because they shape how we imagine and experience our inner lives. Yeah, I guess, you know, the computer metaphor is for me a very damaging one because we're complex organisms, you know, we interact dynamically with our environments. We're in no ways like machines, you know, we're messy and needy, we have desires, we have histories that shape us, we're embedded and cultured and embodied, you know. And to model our self-help technologies on machine-like entities, I think is really damaging.
0: All right, so something you do in the book is you highlight themes of self-improvement that you've seen across time and across cultures. And one area you see is this idea of self-knowledge. But before we explore self-knowledge and how it's manifested itself across time and across cultures, I think it's important to understand humanity's varying conceptions of the self, because that's going to change how you think you can gain self-knowledge. So you know, how have humans thought about the self across cultures and time, you know, and how has it changed across, you know, in the East or in the West?
1: That's a that's a really fascinating topic because we don't often think about how we think about the self, but when we look at the history of, of self-narratives and selfhood conceptions, we, we can see some really exciting and interesting changes and also really dramatic changes and differences between Western societies and Asian societies. So I would say that in Western societies nowadays, we, we see the self as autonomous and isolated and as potentially having quite a lot of agency to shape the external environment. Whereas in the past and in many Asian societies, self was very much understood as essentially relational. And Our dominant narrative nowadays is the individualist narrative of the self, you know, that casts us as independent agents in control of ourselves and our environment, you know, with a relatively fixed identity. But other conceptions of selfhood are more fluid and they place an emphasis on context, on interrelatedness and interbeing. And I would say that generally speaking, Asian conceptions of the self are more contextual, they assume less of a steady essence and more of a changing, interacting, relational self that is very different in different contexts. So, you know, they kind of assume we show up differently depending on whom we meet, which I agree with, that's probably very true. And also, I think there's an assumption that we have less power to control our environments and and that our characters are less fixed and, you know, and our personality traits aren't quite as deeply cemented, but more malleable. And I think related questions are, do we think of the self as, as good or bad in essence? You know, and philosophers are very divided on that question. Do we see ourselves primarily as rational or emotional creatures do we think of ourselves as powerful agents who are able to exercise free will, or do we see ourselves as shaped by internal or external forces? Do we think of ourselves as as material or spiritual beings, or lone warriors out there in hostile territories to secure our own advantages, or you know, embedded parts of communities or of specific ecosystems or nature as a whole? And all of these. Narratives about the self really matter because they they shape how we see ourselves. They also shape our therapeutics. They shape the models we um, devise to improve ourselves. So you're absolutely right. I think we need to understand those base narratives first before we can even talk about self improvement.
0: So just to summarize, the the modern Western conception of the self is I'm in control of who I am, basically, and others in the this culture around me doesn't influence me. I can I'm the master of my fate. And then anciently and, and still today in Eastern cultures, they would say, well, no, the, the, the social context of, that you're embedded in is going to influence the self as well.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, with this idea of mastery comes great responsibility and also feelings of guilt and shame if we don't manage it.
0: We're going to take a quick break for your word from our sponsors. And now back to the show. Okay, so I think we've got a good general background now on the philosophy of self-improvement. And what you do with this book is you not only give the background of the philosophy of self-improvement, but go through specific principles that have been common themes in self-help throughout time and throughout cultures. And you talk about their you first talk about their ancient antecedents, and then you also offer some modern angles that you think could you know, be helpful. Based on your research. So, I, what I'd like to do with the rest of this conversation is talk about a few of these principles in your book. And let's start out with something you see discussed a lot in a lot of self improvement books, and that is self control. So, anciently, how did they think you could control the self? And how have you come uh, to look at this area of self improvement?
1: Yeah, I think self control was really, really important in, in the ancient models partly because of the value of temperance and, you know, the the idea of the golden mean, avoiding extremes. And I think the idea of controlling our animal nature was also really, really strong. So there was a core assumption that we have to be able to exercise control over our minds, emotions, bodies, and drives, and that makes us less animal and more human. And I think the idea of self-control also just came into focus because because of this eternal conflict between the needs and desires of the individual and that of the community. That's always a very precarious and, and difficult balancing act. Um, and of course, you know, the ancient Stoics talked a lot about self-control and in their books, it was mainly about ma- mind control, controlling our emotions by controlling our thoughts and our judgments and our assessments of external factors. And I think many of the, Ancient Stoic models have huge benefits. So, for example, the circle of control idea, you know, that we always should differentiate what is and what is not in our control. And and they very much advocated that we focus on what we can control. and, And they were very strict about it and said, what we can control is only our inner lives and more precisely our judgments and assessments of external events. And These assessments and judgments in turn determine our emotions and that assumption is still core to cognitive behavioral therapy and it has a lot of merits, I would say, but it also has limitations because we're, of course, not just rational beings, you know, we're also messy, creative, spiritual, emotional, we're not just creatures of reason. And I think, you know, this extreme idea of stoic self-control also costs a lot of energy, because, you know, if we constantly have to reason ourselves out of bad states, this is where our energy goes. This is counterintuitive counter to, to many. And I think sometimes it is more helpful to accept negative emotional states rather than trying at all times to change them. It depends, you know, it depends on, on what kind of emotion we're talking about. But I'm generally speaking a big fan of acceptance and commitment therapy, which um, which is a sort of third wave behavioral cognitive model that that addresses this question you know that it takes a lot of energy constantly to try and control our minds and sometimes acceptance is the answer rather than control
0: that's a very eastern idea correct like so you just kind of yeah right so you accept it and you don't try to change it but by doing that you somehow diffuse the emotion
1: yeah, absolutely and I would I would describe ACT, you know, acceptance and commitment therapy as a combination of of cognitive behavioral therapy models plus eastern ideas about acceptance, letting go, and gratitude and mindfulness. And, and that's why I think it's a very powerful therapeutic model because it, it brings that in and it doesn't just assume that we're purely rational creatures and can be purely rational at all times. And acceptance and commitments therapy is, is is based on this idea that we can create a gap between the observing self and you know our our true essence. So so it's all about Recognizing that our thoughts, our emotions come and go, and um, they can be helpful or less helpful, and they're like clouds passing on the sky, but you know they're not permanent, and we don't have to always take them at face value, you know, we can question them, we can look at them with a bit of distance. And I think this idea of defusing from our thoughts can be a really, really powerful one in in daily life, you know. So, for example, when we have negative ideas about ourselves in our head, like, you know, I'm a loser or nobody likes me, a very powerful acceptance and commitment therapy technology is to say, I think that I'm a loser, or my mind tells me that nobody likes me. And that already creates a really, really beneficial distance between ourselves and that thought. And that can help us to look at it as a mere thought rather than reality. And that can be really, really powerful in terms of not being swayed too much, you know, by our inner critic, by automatic negative thinking, um, by you know, unhelpful self narratives, we can look at them as thoughts, as narratives, as you know, recurring patterns. But we don't have to identify with them. We don't fuse with them. You know, we, we actually just observe them with detachment. And and that's yeah, I think one of, one for me, one of the most powerful techniques I have come across in in my research.
0: So another thing that self improvement writers have spilt a lot of ink on is how to become a good person, a virtuous person. And you looked at this, how this has changed over time and across cultures. Let's start with the Eastern approach. Like, what was the Eastern approach on becoming a virtuous or good person?
1: Yeah, I think you know, virtual ethics were very, very important in the in the ancient models and. Um, and I think in uh, probably the most neglected virtue in our age is is altruism. I think altruism is really one that has massively fallen from favor, and that you that we only begin to see again in in self help now, um, and that has actually disappeared for a very very long period. Um, so I think becoming virtuous was about. Embracing the idea of humility. It was about embracing the idea of altruism. And it was about recognizing our place in a, in a bigger whole, you know, understanding our place in, in a broader, wider order of things. And I think that humility and altruism are interestingly two virtues that are experiencing a revival right now. And I think that in terms of improving our virtues, you know, we talked a little bit before about temperance and self-control and mind control, but in terms of the social virtues, I think there is a lot of emphasis on not taking the self too seriously, on, on, on recognizing that we're part of larger structures, you know, that we're always part of other teams, you know, big and small, and that it is also about, you know, looking at our own bubble and, and understanding ourselves as members of a community, a particular historical moment, or, you know, even, even about understanding ourselves as a profoundly flawed species. Um, so I think humility in particular is, is uh, related to grat- gratitude as well, you know, to appreciating on what we have rather than focusing on what we lack. And humility is also about um, recognizing just how much we don't know and acknowledging our blind spots. And the confusion form of humility is profoundly pro-social in spirit. you know it's about valuing the social good more highly than the satisfaction of our personal aspirations and ambitions. Um, But humility is also a core value in Christianity, where it takes the form of self-renunciation and complete submission to God. And that's perhaps um, a a mode of humility that is no longer that attractive nowadays.
0: Something that stood out to me when you talked about approaches to becoming a good person, a virtuous person, is you see both anciently in the East and in in the West particularly in Confucian philosophy, in Aristotelian virtue ethics, you know, Confucius thought the goal, like you wanted to become the kind of person who would do the right thing in the right situation, because it's just, you've, you've naturally developed yourself to become that person. And he thought, well, the way you develop to become that kind of person, where you just sort of naturally do the good and virtuous thing So you had these strict rituals you had to follow, right? You, you follow the ritual and you will shape yourself into a good person who will eventually just naturally just do the right thing in the right moment. And then you say, you argue like you see this in Aristotelian virtue ethics in the West. Aristotle had the same idea that the goal was to become like this virtuous person, but you wanted to become the kind of person who just did the right thing at the right time for the right reason because you're just naturally a good person. And so he thought the way you did that is you you developed these habits of virtue. So you just kind of practiced the skill um, until you shaped yourself into that person. I thought that was interesting that two different cultures came up with the same idea of how to shape uh, a virtuous person.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And, and and that's a really interesting parallel you draw there because I think, you know, in in Confucian ritual, the idea was wasn't just that you you know, you bow down to your elders, but the idea was also that by bowing down, you actually genuinely experience that emotion of, you know, deference and and humility and respect. And that it's not just, you know, like a theatrical gesture, but by performing it, you actually experience it. And um, and I think in Aristotle's framework, at the heart of it really is, is this, as you say, this emphasis is on, us becoming habitually good. You know, this idea that we need to Aim for a long-term transformation of our personalities and to to cultivate specific virtues in in, in such a way that we want to be virtuous rather than forcing ourselves to be virtuous. And he very much believed that in order to be good, we have to internalize virtues and assimilate them into firm habits so that we voluntarily and automatically wish to perform good actions at all times. And I think that's very different from, you know, and he he has this interesting distinction between the continent and the incontinent person. So the incontinent person would like to be virtuous, but they're constantly overridden by their passions and they they can't quite manage to. They would like to, but they can't. And then the continent person wants to be virtuous, but has to force themselves to be virtuous, you know? so So they're not automatically and naturally virtuous, but it's an effort. It's a, it's a constant moral and cognitive effort to be virtuous. And he doesn't rate that very highly. I mean, he rates it more highly than being incontinent, but it's it's not the aim of his kind of philosophy of virtue ethics, which is all about wanting to perform virtuous deeds so you don't have to even force yourself to do it. And I guess the idea is very much to establish firm habits and to perform good acts and to want to perform them too um, so that they become a natural and an automatic habit that we don't even think about.
0: Okay, so we've been talking a lot about improving the inner self. But as we touched on before, a lot of self-improvement advice is about improving our relationships with other people. So I want to dig more into that. In your research, what did this interrelational advice look like both anciently and in more modern times
1: yeah so i think you know in the Confucian framework it was all about respect for existing hierarchies right and, and about doing your duty and um and you know seeing yourself as defined by your relations with others never questioning your position in these hierarchies and so on um an interesting new perspective regarding our relationships, I think comes with Machiavelli, who advocated that we always need to understand the other's fears and desires and then use this knowledge to manipulate them. So he, you know, in The Prince, he talked about talking the talk and paying lip service to the values and sensibilities of the day, um, but being utterly ruthless and power-focused behind the scenes in order to get what you want. And of course, that's not a very positive model of human relationships. And it's a very kind of power driven and, um, Effect-oriented way of of looking them. One of my favorite modern writers on this topic is is surprisingly Dale Carnegie. You know, I, I would say da- Dale Carnegie's book How to Win Friends and Influence People, which was published in 1936 in the you know Great Depression, it was the one one book that surprised me most because I um I you know it was written for salespeople and I thought it would be quite cheesy and cringeworthy, but in fact it is full of sound advice. You know that really has survived the test of time, because Carnegie also talks about mentalizing, like Machiavelli. You know he thinks we, in order to establish good relations and effective relationships with other people, we need to mentalize. We need to step in their shoes and understand what they want and what they fear. And um, but there's also a nicer side to his model in that he advocates giving true attention and recognition. So I would say that you know Carnegie really argues that we need to see the world from other people's point of view if we want to communicate with them in an effective way and very few of us master this art because it requires the ability to imagine what lies beyond our own cognitive maps and he ultimately thought that human beings are very easy to read and he, he argued that we have an unquenchable thirst for attention, sympathy, and respect. And if we want others to like us, we simply have to give give them that. You know, we have to find ways of of giving attention, sympathy, and respect. And like Machiavelli, Carnegie actually has an astonishingly low opinion of other human beings, and he thought they were quite self-obsessed and needy. And ultimately, he believed that in order to establish positive relations. We need to make others feel appreciated and we can thereby render them more compliant with our own agendas. But it sounds very manipulative, but I think in his worldview, it was a kind of win-win situation because what others want above all is to feel important and to be praised. And, you know, by giving that praise and by making others feel important, we can establish good relationships. So he has some fantastic lines in his book, such as, you know, a person's name is to that person the sweetest and most important sound in any language. And he also estimates that we spend 95% of our time thinking about ourselves. And he also wrote that We should remember that the people we are talking to are a hundred times more interested in themselves and their wants and problems than they are in ourselves and our problems. And, he, he came up with a few simple ways of making people like us. So, so he says we need to be genuinely interested in the other person, smile, remember their first name and use it often, be a good listener and encourage others simply to talk about themselves. And we should also talk about the other person's interests and make them feel important. And he has a lot of other little tricks, but they aren't really as manipulative as they sound, I think, because ultimately they are about... Giving attention, you know, and attention is a gift. Attention is is what we all want, and by giving it and by being genuinely interested in another person, I think that that is a very good basis for for establishing relationships.
0: Okay, so Dale Carnegie, he's the nice Machiavelli. Yeah, you, 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 <laughs>
1: that's you make a good the, way of putting it.
0: But you point out, okay, these things are good; they're they they, they work. But Carnegie's idea to relationships. You you are nice because you want something. It's like it's almost transactional. That's kind of like the underlying assumption. This was written to help salespeople land sales.
1: Yeah, that's true. I mean, there is something transactional about, about his model, and I won't deny it, but I think if we take the transactional side out of the picture, we're left with something more positive. You know, we're left with, you know giving attention and sympathy and being genuinely curious about the other person.
0: No, I, I, think that, I think that's great. I mean, a philosopher who talked about the importance of attention in a relationship, Simone Weiss, talked a lot about that. Love is just basically paying attention to another person. And I think what you're saying is that Carnegie's advice are principles to apply to give attention to people.
1: Yeah, I mean I I think we can, you know, we can see we can see him in a slightly darker light in the sense that it is about ultimately, you know, establishing relationships for a certain purpose. But I suppose many of our interactions have a purpose, you know, and he he articulates that. And of course in the sense that we I think the deeper relationships we engage in, you know, the kind of genuinely meaningful ones, the ones that are about love and giving and you know, appreciating and celebrating the other person, they would not be the place to try any of these, you know. (laughs) They have to be based on authentic and non-purpose-driven desires and interactions. Absolutely.
0: How is your research into self-improvement changed the way you approach your own self-improvement?
1: Yes. I think writing this book and, and doing all this research has changed me in one way above all, and that was that when I read all the theory, I developed a really strong desire to get engaged with the practice. So I actually trained as a coach and i have been coaching and helping clients to grow for more than 2 years now and i really love it because i feel like i've discovered so many exciting ideas and techniques and you know philosophical and psychological frameworks that i really wanted to to see how i can help other people apply them you know because reading a book is one thing but i think in order truly to change ourselves we sometimes need other people, you know, to help us see ourselves slightly differently, to question us, to challenge us, to act as a mirror. And in my coaching, I try to integrate ancient and evidence-based scientific approaches. And, you know, as I mentioned before, I really love ACT, acceptance and commitment therapy, which in its own right does that integration. And I think that, in my own life, what what has changed most dramatically is that I'm I'm I've become more interested in the practice than in the theory.
0: Well, I'm, you've read hundreds of self improvement books to write this book. Are, do you have like your top three self improvements that you would recommend people pick up?
1: Oh, top three is really tricky. <laughs> There's so many books I love, um, but if I have to. If I have to limit myself to just three, I would say Marcus Aurelius's Meditations. So it's by the Roman emperor and stoic philosopher Marcus Aurelius. And um, it basically is a beautifully written journal that... Really illustrates and explains in, in theoretical terms, but also gives lots and lots of practical examples. And it, it illustrates this idea that suffering is caused not by external events, but by our own reactions to these events, you know, by faulty judgments and unrealistic expectations. And Aurelius argues that it's pointless to worry about external events that are beyond our control, and we should focus all our attention on what we can control. And there's a beautiful line in the book, one of my favorites ever, and that is only a madman looks for figs in winter. So it's the idea that we have to adjust our expectations. And my other second favorite book is Russ Harris's The Happiness Trap. And that is based on acceptance and commitment therapy. It's a beautiful, simple, very engaging and relatable explanation of the the basic Premises of of ACT and how we can apply it in our own lives. And my third choice would be Viktor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning, you know, old classic. And that, that has to be on my list because it has to be on my list because it's all about purpose and meaning and how, you know, powerful why that drives us, you know, can help us tolerate almost any how and if I can mention the fourth one, sure, <laughs> yes, mentioned Eckhart Tolle's uh, "The Power of Now," which is a bit too esoteric for my taste in lots of ways, but I think has a very, very powerful message about living in the present and, and why we should and how we can how we can do so.
0: Well, Anna, this has been a great conversation. Where can people go to learn more about the book and your work?
1: So you you can always go to my website, and I'm also really interested in building bridges between you know, the theory and practice, they can just find me online. So I'm online at theexhaustioncoach.com. And I, you know, I'm very happy to offer coaching sessions based on very specific ideas and philosophical frameworks. And I think there's probably something that appeals to different people. you know. Some people like to work on their imagination. Some people want to work on their mentalizing. Some people want to work on how to be more present. Some people want to work on self-knowledge or mind control. And that's something I'd be very happy to, to help with.
0: Fantastic. Well, Anna Schaffner, thanks for your time. It's been a pleasure.
1: Thank you very much for having me, Brett.
0: My guest is Anna Schaffner. She's the author of the book, The Art of Self-Improvement. It's available on amazon.com and bookstores everywhere. You can find more information about her work at her coaching website, the-exhaustion-coach.com. Also check out our show notes at aom.is self-improvement, where you can find links to resources and we delve deeper into this topic. Well, that wraps up another edition of the AOM podcast. Make sure to check out our website at artofmanless.com where you find our podcast archives as well as thousands of articles written over the years about pretty much anything you could think of. And if you'd like to enjoy ad-free episodes of the AOM podcast, you can do so on Stitcher Premium. Head over to stitcherpremium.com, sign up, use code MANLESS at checkout for a free month trial. Once you're signed up, download the Stitcher app on Android iOS, and you can start enjoying ad-free episodes of the AOM podcast. And if you haven't done so already, I'd appreciate if you take one minute to give us a view on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Helps out a lot. If you've done that already, thank you. Please consider sharing the show with a friend or family member who would think we get something out of it. As always, thank you for the continued support. Until next time, it's Brett McKay. Reminds you on to list of anyone podcast, but put what you've heard into action.